0: Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh. and today is a special day because not only am I being joined by Professor Richard Tedlow, but also by an old college buddy of his former FCC Commissioner Reed Hunt, and we're going to talk about a lot of different topics, but we're definitely going to spend some time on Section 230 and its impact on the internet. Richard, Reed, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for
1: having us. Glad to be here.
0: Now, my understanding is that the two of you know each other from your undergraduate days. So tell me a little bit about what it was like then. Set the scene. Picture the the, the, the life that you guys were leading. I want to understand what Richard's hairdo was like then. Give me the
1: whole nine yards. Reed, you want to start? You know, not to be uh, 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 down in the mouth about it, but... Um, we met at the end of um, our junior year which was uh, May 1968 approximately and uh, the events right now in the United States uh, protests uh, some turning into looting police versus protester uh, confrontations uh, uh, the world of politics and turmoil it all seems like 1968 all over again, and uh, Richard and I have talked to each other about how 52 years later we we had hoped by now that uh, a race and conflict and hatred would have been able to have been expurgated from our society, and it makes it makes us ask. Um, is this progress? Is this the absence of progress? Is history just a returning cycle? Has our generation failed? Serious questions.
0: Well, Richard, you're the historian. What's your historical perspective?
1: Well, I,
2: I certainly, you know, I remember meeting Reed very well. Uh, they were tumultuous times. Um, uh, Yale was very different. So I it. I mean, we literally met between the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and then later, later of Robert Kennedy. My recollection is he was assassinated in June. Martin Luther King was assassinated, I believe, on April 4th, 1968. Um, uh, and it was a tumultuous time. I think that, um, I mean, uh, for me personally, uh, there was, despite the, um, the unending, seemingly unending war in Vietnam, uh, and the changes that everybody was going through uh, there was a sense of hope and uh, I'm just not sure that same hope is present in the country today if there were one, uh, if I were to cite one major difference between the two uh, years it would be that I would second what Reed said which is that uh, you know race has, always been a deep fissure in American history. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, in a a very justly famous book called The Souls of Black Folk, which was published, I believe, in 1903, said that uh, the, the problem of the 20th century, I'm paraphrasing, is the problem of the color line. And it turns out that that's also the problem of the 21st century. And I think that uh, uh, that was a sad commentary and it takes me something to, its quite by surprise, frankly.
0: And Reed, you have spent much of your adult life in public service, trying to make this country a better place. What are your perspectives? What do you think as you see what's going on right
1: now? So, um, I became the FCC chairman, uh, at the same time that our generation uh, for the very first time. Uh, these are the generation of people born in the late 40s, early 50s, the same time that our generation uh, assumed political office. Specifically, Bill Clinton was elected president and Al Gore was elected vice president. Uh, the different Congress uh, people of our generation uh, who had entered starting in the 1970s were obtaining seniority in the committees by the, 1992. And so our generation... Um, which was pretty much evenly split between conservatives and liberals, uh, was assuming political power. Uh, It's worth remembering that Bill Clinton did not have a plurality. Uh, It's pretty easily argued that he would not have gotten elected at all against uh, uh, the first George Bush if uh, Perot had not entered the race. And so he was uh, certainly not positioned uh, uh, meaningfully left of the center. You know, he was a moderate, uh, you know, is, is the way to describe it. But what did we want to do, right? What did we want to do? We, we all believed in progress deeply. Uh, we believed, uh, those of us in the government then, and, and lots of people outside of the government talking about the government, like Richard up at Harvard at that time teaching. What we wanted to do was to have the power of technology and the power of markets, and the power of democracy as an idea all run together in a great river that would flow towards a better society, a better nation. It was had only been uh, two years earlier that the Soviet, one year earlier, 1991, that the Soviet Union dissolved. 1989, the wall came down. Richard will correct me if I have the years wrong. No, you're right. There was a fear, feeling of, uh, of triumph and a feeling that capitalism and democracy were one, and a feeling that generating tremendous uh, economic progress uh, or, or big GDP growth was the best possible social policy. Imbued with this spirit of optimism, we also wanted to change all the communications laws. And so in a bipartisan effort, though that's a phrase bipartisan that has not featured prominently for the last decade, in a bipartisan effort, uh, the decision was made in Congress to changed the communications laws entirely. The change uh, uh, produced the uh, law signed in February of 1996, an election year, presidential election year, signing a major reform in an election year now seems inconceivable, uh, and that was the Telecommunications Act. Embedded in that act in Title V was uh, something called Section 230, and 230, uh, is the provision that uh, grants immunity to let's just they weren't then called social networks, but let's call them social networks now uh, that grants immunity to social networks for posting user-generated content, for posting tweets, uh, immunity from lawsuits. Meaning the tweets can upset somebody, they can do harm to somebody, they can be uh, they can be completely out of bounds, but the but the entity that posts them is immune. Why did we want to do that? Because we thought that if everyone had a voice and could bypass the broadcasters and bypass the newspapers and bypass the radio stations and speak out loud on a platform called the internet, that that was going to promote democracy. That the more people that spoke, the more progress would be made towards reaching a consensus we had the view that all that speech would lead to a better country and in the same way that all the business entrepreneurship would create a better country. Again, just to make the same point, our view then was that there was a perfect congruence between the entrepreneurship and the free speech, between the creation of value in business and the creation of opinions that were valuable through the exercise of speech. It seemed utterly congruent. Now we stop and we look around and we say, all of the tremendous wealth created from 1992 to the present, a huge, huge proportion of it has gone to hardly anyone, just to the very, very top. And all that speech, well, it seems to be fostering hatred at its scale and uh, of violence and and cruelty that is propagated at a speed that is utterly without precedent, it makes our views of 92, 93, the early 90s, it makes them look naive. It makes them maybe look worse than naive, uh, misguided. That's the question I would put to you and to Richard.
0: And it does seem to me that it's very clear that the highest hopes you had for what Section 230 would do did not necessarily come to pass. On the one hand, it absolutely is the case that new voices have emerged and people who would not have been heard from before have been heard from. But that is a sword with two edges because there are people that we probably would not like to hear from. The Alt-right, the white supremacists and various other sort of violent types that have taken to the Internet and the communications networks like a duck to water. And yet this is true of all communications networks, all forms of speech. Uh, Is this somehow different in the social media age, you think?
1: Richard, what do you think?
2: Yes, I do. Um, I think that... um, I think that uh, more people are speaking. I mean, that part of the uh, hope has been realized, but I think that they're speaking to fewer listeners and that there, are, um, there, are, uh, there have developed sets of echo chambers where people listen only to themselves or to others who have you know, views similar to theirs and, uh, and the result is there's a lack of breadth of view that you did get in say, for example, when we were in college from, for example, uh, the three major television news networks and especially CBS, uh, whose anchor person at the time was a man named Walter Cronkite, who was the most trusted person in America according to polls in 1969. And Lyndon Johnson, who was the president of from 1963 through 1969, uh, said that when he lost Cronkite, Cronkite went to Vietnam and Cronkite came back uh, against the war. He said when he lost Cronkite, he knew he was th- that the effort was finished. Uh, today, if you were to ask the following question, who is the most trusted person in America? I don't think you could get an answer. In other words, there's been an atomization of our society rather than an empowerment of it. Uh, and, and that's,
1: uh, we're we're living with the results of that right now. It's not good. So I run a nonprofit, uh, called the Coalition for Green Capital. As we speak right this exact second, we're trying to get uh, a piece of legislation in a bill that the Democrats would pass in the House, uh, that would fund a, uh, a nonprofit called the Clean Energy Jobs Fund. If we could get $35 $35 billion deposited in there. Our studies showed that we could create 5.4 million new jobs in the next five years. Uh, the country desperately needs 5.4 million new jobs created. It probably needs, according to our estimates, approximately 12 million new jobs created. Uh, that's the number of people who, as the economy opens up, will find that they don't have work to go back to. Uh, in the context of trying to persuade the Congress to adopt this. We did a poll on the exact question that Richard just mentioned. Who do you trust? Who do you trust to jumpstart the economy? Who do you trust to cope with the uh, pandemic? Uh, and we asked in the poll, a very sophisticated poll, cost $25,000. We polled all over the country and in all the swing states. Uh, and not one single person, not the president, not Congress, not governors, not the media, not one single person Uh, got more than one-third of the people uh, to say that they were trusted. In other words, as to every single person that we presented in the poll, two-thirds of the country did not trust that person. That's what you were saying, Richard. Yes. That's a big big number. That's a big change. It's a big change. It's a big change. change. It would have been, Walter Cronkite would have gotten an 80% on that in the 1960s and 70s. And even in the 1990s, uh, the trust uh, uh, would have, you know, President Clinton, you know, and certainly in the pre-Monica era would have gotten very high marks on all that. Um, what we have now in Joe Biden, who gave a speech that I that today that I thought was extremely eloquent, we have now someone who is saying, in, in, in more eloquently than this, I know that everybody is in pain. I know there's trouble that stalks the land. You can trust me. I won't mislead you. That's what he said today. He's trying to position himself as what Richard was saying, a a trusted figure in an era where the vast majority of people don't trust institutions, don't trust anyone, don't see leaders. He's at least trying to address the leadership crisis.
2: Well, it's also uh, perhaps worth noting that in 1976, when the presidential contest was between a, a Democrat Jimmy Carter and the Republican Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter said, "I'll never lie to you." Uh, now, um, if the present incumbent were to make a statement like that, it, it would have no credibility. Um, uh, when we were, when Reed and I were very young, Dwight D. Eisenhower was the president of the United States, and and he was widely trusted and widely believed, and. Um, uh, that's what you were, that that was what, when we grew up, that was your idea of a president was someone whose word you could trust. Uh, when, when, when the Cuban, uh, missile crisis took place in 1962, John F. Kennedy, my recollection is this is from recollection and perhaps details are wrong, but, uh, the spirit is correct. John F. Kennedy sent, uh, Dean Acheson who had been, uh, Uh, Harry S. Truman's uh, Secretary of State and was an elder statesman in the United States, to Charles de Gaulle in in Paris to explain to him that there were in fact uh, missiles in Cuba and that they threatened the continental United States. And he brought photos and he said, you know, Mr. President, talking to de Gaulle, here is the proof that I bring you. And de Gaulle's response, it is said, was, the word of the president is good enough for me. You don't need to show me proof. And what foreign leader would say that today? Uh, I don't think there's anyone in the world who would make a statement like that today.
1: Now, I, I, now I do want to argue. I do want to argue on the optimistic side uh, for a second by making the following point. Uh, uh, Based on my rough count, nearly 100% of all the CEOs in the technology sector in the last three and a half days have issued uh, statements uh, responding to uh, the the, the death of George Floyd, responding to the obvious uh, uh, desire of many, 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 many people to protest Uh, you know, in a peaceable way, Uh, commenting also about the looters uh, for whom there's no excuse. But these statements, uh, company after company, uh, by one CEO after another, uh, they did not occur in 1968. Corporate America uh, did not engage in this kind of discourse in that era. I'm not saying that the CEOs then were bad, I'm saying now there's obviously a desire and a felt need. Indeed, it's, re- it's regarded as a necessity for, for these CEOs to speak on these major issues. And you may say, why? And we know the answer. Uh, their employees demand uh, to hear from them. And their customers want to hear from them. And their profiles in the world uh, require that they uh, speak to these issues. And if you look at these statements, and I've looked at a bunch of them, uh, they're really eloquent. And if you want just one, uh, uh that deserves looking at, uh, look at what John Donahoe at Nike, uh, uh, put out as the new Nike ad, uh, uh, which is plays off of just do it and says, uh, uh, basically uh, take action against racism. It's a beautiful, beautiful, simple ad, um, poignantly in black and white. And, um, I think that that's pretty remarkable. I also think that these statements are circulated and are known precisely because the internet does wrap around the world today. And I'll say one more thing on the positive side. Because there is a global communications platform, it's based on silicon, it operates on the internet, it's originally used all the world's telephone networks, now it uses all the world's mobile telephone networks. That platform, is permitting um, uh, hundreds, well, thousands of scientists engaged in hundreds of efforts to develop a therapy for uh, uh, those who contract COVID-19 and also uh, vaccines to deal with it. And all this is occurring at a speed and with a scale uh, that has never before been seen uh, in response to any healthcare crisis. So I'm saying two things at the same time. All these corporate executives are able to speak to an audience and they feel they need to. And the things they're saying are, at least in my view and in the view of the overwhelming percentage of Americans, virtuous and decent and, and honorable. And also we see that technology is able to work on solutions to problems at a scale uh, that was beyond imagination in 68. So I want to say these positive things because I, I feel that they are, they are also true. I want to, uh, uh,
2: if I can, I, I don't want to
0: interrupt you, Chris, if you were about to say something. I was just going to mention one thing and tie it back to the discussion we've been having overall around the rise of charisma in business leadership and point out that one of the reasons why it's become so important for the CEOs to make a statement about a social issue like this is that shift that you described, Richard, in which people no longer view work as a place where they show up well, in this case, they stay at home and they collect a paycheck every two weeks, they now view it as a core part of how they make their lives meaningful. And if that's the case, then clearly the leaders of those organizations have to make statements about important social issues.
1: And and let me, uh, Richard, if I'm interrupting you, I apologize. Uh, I want to say, I want to tie this back to 230. What you've seen with Jack Dorsey at Twitter is... Uh, it should not be discounted. It is a very dramatic, very person-directed meaning directed at President Trump action that is meant to express a value. Now you can disagree with with uh, uh, Twitter uh, labeling and uh, tr- and confining uh, uh, some but not all of the president's tweets, but what I think has to be recognized is, Twitter and, and, and Jack decided to take action. And it's of a piece with all these CEOs deciding they have to speak and that they have to take action. And it's in the highest tradition of, of free speech in America and in any functioning democracy, uh, for Twitter to say, for Jack to say, Here's the action that I'm going to take. I'm going to limit uh, the ability of uh, someone with whom I profoundly disagree to use my platform to reach a massive audience. That that even if you even if you think he shouldn't be doing that, you have to say that is in the highest tradition of free speech. Well, let me let me build on that. Uh, I
2: would like to call out Tim Cook at Apple uh, because his statement uh, was uh, profoundly eloquent, and moreover, he not only suggested that action be taken, he proposed specific action. He made it possible for people to contribute money that Apple would match. I think twice as much as as they had before. Uh, to various causes which were involved in, uh, in some way, bringing justice to that part of this of our society to which justice is denied. Uh, in other words, it's they're more than just words, and uh, I, I think that's very important. I was disappointed by the the statements made by the presidents of Harvard and Yale because they were, uh, they suggested one of them suggested action and didn't say what action was required, and the other basically was um, very bland. Uh, not all universities, however, have let us down. The the, the president of Wellesley College uh, made a statement about the present situation, which people ought to read, uh, because it's elegant and eloquent and touching and real. So we do have leaders who are speaking out. Uh, and it is clearly true that the internet greatly amplifies the impact of the speech that they are um,
1: that they're making. Well, let me say something if I can about section 230. so section 230 just to illuminate this a little bit, contains a provision uh, called the Good Samaritan Provision and the idea here, uh, and I was the chairman of the FCC at the time I was uh, there at the Library of Congress when uh, the bill Telecommunications Act uh, was signed by the President. It was the first piece of legislation in the history of America that was digitally signed. Uh, and the real pins that were used to record the digital signature were approximately 12 in number. I remember clearly that uh, uh, Secretary of Commerce Ron Brown took one of those pens, and gave it to me. I framed it. Uh, weeks later, he died in a Uh, a good Samaritan mission uh, over uh, uh, the countries that formerly had composed Yugoslavia. Uh, I'm digressing, but this was on my mind because uh, we held a memorial service for him at the same St. John's Church that the president used as a prop uh, uh, yesterday. Um, It's painful to see uh, the the, the, great church used in that way. But back to uh, the bill. bill. Um, So the Good Samaritan provision uh, says uh, that if the platform uh, proprietor decides to protect the audience from certain kinds of messages, tweets, any kind of message on a social network, uh, to protect the audience, then that same general immunity that the whole provision uh, is meant to create for all the user-generated content, that same general immunity will apply to the proprietor that decided to protect the audience. Okay, the question here is, according to uh, the White House, uh, in the executive order that was signed by the president uh, on the 28th of May, which was not that long ago, the question is whether or not When Twitter marks or edits or limits the president's tweets, should that be deemed inconsistent with the Good Samaritan uh, provision? Is it not the act of a Good Samaritan? Instead, should that be a basis to eliminate the immunity? And if the immunity is eliminated, then what arises is the threat of lawsuits being filed against uh, Twitter. Now who would file the lawsuits and you know what would they be about none of that is in the executive order but the executive order clearly without any question this is not interpretation is a it, a very large number of words that equal just one word threat. And it is in a, it is a clear statement that The president would like the other agencies of government to act so as to take away the immunities that exist for Twitter because Twitter chose to regard the president's own tweet as dangerous because it would inflame a certain audience. So this is an executive order the like of which I I have never seen. It is an executive order that is clearly directed at one company and is clearly a statement that commercial harm uh, is intended to be inflicted on that company. That's what that's what it's all about. And that. I've never seen an executive order, uh, but that uh, reminds one of something else that goes back uh, uh, to the uh, to the. To when Richard and I were very, very young, back to when Richard Nixon, uh, when the Washington Post was uh, his enemy, and when the Washington Post, and this has been in movies, when the Washington Post was exploring Watergate, uh, which ultimately led to Richard Nixon's resignation, of course, Richard Nixon uh, famously said to people around him, we have this now on tapes, right? We know this happened. It's not speculation. He famously said, Well, why don't we have the Federal Communications Commission take away the TV licenses that were given to the Washington Post? It's a commercial threat, right? And taking away their licenses would have scuttled the IPO that was at work right at that time. And so Catherine Graham, this is in a movie, Catherine Graham, the head of the Washington Post, had to decide whether to run that risk, which she she did take that risk by continuing to let Woodward and Bernstein do their job this is exactly the same as the th- kind of threat being posed uh, against twitter reed
2: can i ask you a question about the, the substance of the of the change that would take place if this executive order somehow became law which i assume can only happen by congressional enactment uh, unless the commission itself can just do it i mean I, you well the, the
1: president said in the executive order Uh, that within 60 days of the 28th of May, he wants the Department of Commerce to file a petition at the Federal Communications Commission. And he wants that petition to express his wishes. And he wants the Federal Communications Commission to decide to take the immunity away. That's what the executive order says.
2: Okay, once the immunity was taken away, would that put Twitter from a legal standpoint, basically in the same position that the New York Times is in or that the Washington Post is in or that any author is in who, I mean, if you write a book, my understanding is, I mean, you're the attorney here, but if you, my understanding is if you write a book and you spread a libel, even if you have a footnote, you didn't make it up, you had a good source, you you can be sued for spreading that libel. First of all, my question is, is that true? And secondly, uh, is that the position that Twitter would be in? In other words, um, if if someone said something, you know, defamatory on purpose in their in their, in a tweet, would Twitter then be liable to be sued for that action?
1: So I think the basic answer to your excellent question is yes. Uh, just to add a few more words to yes. Um, The reason that the immunity is important to Twitter or to Facebook or to any proprietor of one of these platforms is that unlike the New York Times or unlike a TV station, for 99.99% of all of the content that's posted, they don't exercise an editorial function, right? It's user generated. And that is the idea we had, you know, all those years ago, that the fundamentally that would give everyone a lot more oomph to their free speech. So if, in fact, uh, you know, if a, a, a John in a high school said something really defamatory about Jill in the class, you know, then Jill or her parents could sue John or John's parents because the whole concept of immunity would be gone. But from Twitter's perspective, they could also sue Twitter. Right. And so the, the, the fear all the way back to the drafting of this, the fear was you just won't be able to have online person to person, multi-person conversation. You won't be able to have that if lawyers can generate lawsuits against the proprietor of the platform. Right? You'll you'll be back into the New York Times will decide how many letters to the editor to publish and the answer will always be not very many. So, the threat here is a threat that there'll be almost infinite litigation and in that the social uh, platforms will be just not able to operate. Uh, I'd like to say two things about that. Uh, first, uh, This is actually uh, the kind of paradigm that does apply in China, meaning they have social platforms. They go by their other names, right? But the government monitors all of them, and the government uh, jails, uh, it is generally thought, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people per year for things that they post, and the government tells the proprietors what to uh, take down and what not to take down. And there's not any doubt about this. I've been in China and I met with the person who has the job of doing this. Now he has a lot more people working for him than I ever had at the FCC. So in other countries, authoritarian regimes do use their laws to control and manage the users and the proprietors of the social media platforms. So here's the question presented in that this executive order presents. Is that what you want the government in the U.S. to do? Because when the executive order tells the Department of Commerce to tell the FCC to entertain this concept of taking away uh, the immunity, you're saying that the FCC will have the jurisdiction to control the platform. That's what that means. And, and for the government to control a publishing platform, uh, that, we, we've never done that. So we've never done that since the Bill of Rights. That's, we just don't do that. Well, previously, we never ever entertained anything like that in this country.
2: It may be worth mentioning at this time that the uh, the only industry that is, protected specifically by the Constitution is the press. And uh, what you're suggesting is that there's a, an intervention that's being suggested here uh, by the president, which um, may run foul follow the First Amendment. I mean,
1: uh, is that not possible, Reed uh, Well, let's assume that the Secretary of Commerce does what he's told, that Wilbur Ross does what he's told. Let's assume he files this petition in 60 days from May 28. uh, So that would be the end of July, right? Uh, And let's assume the FCC uh, immediately takes it up. Then they'd have to have a vote. Uh, The commissioners would have to decide whether they had the jurisdiction, in other words, the legal authority to interpret 230 the way they wanted, including uh, to have it be interpreted in a way that would um, um, produce... uh, grave, grave trouble for uh, uh, Twitter. And uh, I use that phrase because that's pretty much the same phrase Richard Nixon used when talking about taking away the TV licenses from the Washington Post. I think he said something like, I want to cause them a, a deep trouble or something like that. It's just exact, to me, the situation is exactly the same. The media at issue are different, but the situation is the same. The proprietor of the platform, in the case of The Post, it was a newspaper here it's Twitter, uh, has done something the president doesn't like. And so the president says, I want to cause him trouble.
2: I think uh, um, there's a lot more to be said about this. And we've got Chris, fortunately, a subject matter expert here in Reed. But I think it's worth just, just pausing for a second to reflect on the courage of Jack Dorsey in doing what he did because uh not every social media company is is doing what Dorsey has done and he bought himself a lot of trouble um but uh you know he's he's shown it seems to me that he's the CEO of a company that's morally centered and what's that worth and the answer is quite a lot
0: And I think one of the things that is interesting about this, and obviously we're all here in Silicon Valley, so we are hearing the Silicon Valley gossip circles as well. Part of it is that Twitter is in a better position to do this than the other major technology companies. In other words, they are less threatenable in some ways because they don't have the, th- the threat of antitrust hanging over their heads in the same way that there is for, say, Google or Facebook. That being said, it still takes a lot of courage to defy any president, let alone one as vindictive as this one.
2: Well, I mean, that's true. I mean, what you just said is true. It takes a lot of courage and you're buying a lot of uh, trouble and... Um Instead of just sitting back and enjoying the great wealth that you doubtless
1: possess. Look, I, I uh, presidents who I've known uh, uh, pretty well, uh, you know, are Bill Clinton and, and Barack Obama, and of course Richard. And I went to college with uh, uh, George Bush the younger, and knew him. I knew him very well back in those days. I don't know everything about them, but I'm absolutely sure I'm right about this. Uh, They all, pretty much every day, uh, read something in a newspaper, saw something on TV, and when the internet was around, (laughs) noticed something on the internet that they really thought was unfair, inaccurate, uh, terrible. Over and over and over and over and over. What's different about 2017, 2018, 2019, and the present. What's different about uh, this administration is the virtually nonstop uh, and utterly personalized uh, attacks and uh, and threats against all the media proprietors, against uh, CNN, against uh, Twitter, uh, they're all castigated as politically biased. The New York Times and The Washington Post also. New York also. Times and The Washington Post. And they've all, all of the um, different people on the other side of this have had to stand up really every single day during the Trump administration for for freedom, for freedom. This is different. Richard, you'll agree. The the nonstop uh, attack against every media that doesn't act as a direct conduit of the president's uh, 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 voice and and doesn't support in every conceivable way uh, everything that he uh, says, Uh, I I don't think that has a historic parallel in No, it
2: doesn't, and it's quite astonishing.
1: Uh, I mean, especially...
2: uh, what struck me when was when the his rallies, which he relishes so much, um, at those rallies, he would point, um, before COVID-19 made them impossible, um, at, the, uh, at where the, the media were, and he would say, you see those people, those are your enemy. Uh, whereas, you know, it, it has been an article of faith in this country since its founding, that uh, uh, that the press was precious and freedom of the press was to be gu- uh, guarded, and that's why it's in the Constitution. Uh, I, no,
1: there's, there's never been anything like this. Nothing like it. I hope the Secretary of Commerce. This may be weird. I'll say it anyhow. Uh, I don't think it would be bad if the Secretary of Commerce filed that petition at the FCC, and if the. Uh, five commissioners all had to vote on whether they had jurisdiction over the content of the internet and whether they were going to punish uh, Twitter. I think people have to stand up and be counted. I think the people that try to protest peaceably are standing up and being counted. I don't have sympathy. I have nothing but loathing for the looters. I don't know whether they are Antifa from the extreme left or whether they are Russian-inspired bad actors or whether they are uh, white nationalists from the extreme right. I have no idea. I don't think anyone has any idea. My friends in Minneapolis tell me that almost everyone arrested has come from out of town, which just tells you something, but we don't know exactly what. I'm just saying it's there's a clear, clear, easy division between free freedom of speech and the right to peaceably assemble and the right to stand somewhere and hold a sign and say, this is what I believe, all that is good and that is democracy. And then on the other side, you know, there, there's, there's looting and violence, which, you know, everyone should condemn. But on the free speech side, on the freedom side, that is where we have seen uh, uh, the media uh, uh, just be blamed for the things they do for now uh, three and a half straight years.
2: Well, and we, we also I think, you know, have to keep evermost in our mind what why the what lit this fuse, and it was the murder uh, that was available because of video that was spread on the internet of uh, a man who was helpless, who was face down, who was uh, not threatening anybody, who was in fact handcuffed uh, by a policeman who had his knee on that man's neck for, I believe, eight minutes and 46 seconds, or uh, a period of time such as that. And um, if, you, if you watch that video, which it's very difficult to do, it's no wonder people are upset. If you watch the video, one of the striking things about it is that the uh, policeman, in question, um, uh, at one point has his hand in his pocket or more than once. And if you look at his face, he doesn't look angry. This doesn't look like something like he's lost control of himself. It looks like this is another day at work for him. And it's this almost nonchalance with which he commits a murder um, that uh, has, uh, you know, set the nation uh, ablaze. and. Uh, so we have to think about what started all this, and it was that it was that act. On, it was that act on on the back of um, of centuries of misdeeds, of slavery, of Jim Crow, of lynching, of convict labor, of you name it. Um, uh, and and uh, you know we're feeling the results of that today,
1: this very day. So on a going forward basis. You know, we we have to ask ourselves, I think, as a country, you know, uh, a number of questions. This is what I'm not going to say is not the biggest one, but I think it's an important one. Do we want these social media networks to exist? Do we want them to facilitate speech by everyone, including speech that uh, reasonable people find uh, repugnant? Do we want that? And I think the answer, uh, my answer is, we do want that. Number two, do we want the proprietors of these uh, massive, unprecedentedly large uh, social media networks, do we want them to be able to act responsibly? Do we want them to be forced by public opinion and employee demands to edit and uh, and to hire people and spend money to hire editors and to... Uh, uh, build algorithms that don't promote division and hostility, but instead that actually identify uh, cruel speech, hate speech, uh, violence inciting speech? My answer to that is we absolutely want them to do that. And if they have to hire uh, uh, more people and spend more money to do it, we absolutely want them to do that. But do we want the United States government to tell them that the way that they edit? is governed by the Federal Communications Commission. That That is a line that we have never, ever thought before in American history was, was a line the government should cross. And I don't know why it's a good idea now.
0: I think it's clearly a bad idea now. Uh, I do think that one of the issues is that we arrived at this point precisely because of the algorithmic nature of these networks. And my understanding, and Reid, you may also hear some of this as well, is if you look within an organization like Facebook, for example, for most of the history of the company, the attention of its people has been devoted to one thing, which is maximizing user engagement, And so the algorithms carefully look through all the interactions, all the likes, all the shares, all the different things that occur and says, what is the content that drives the most activity? And then tries to surface that content to the people who are most likely to act as a result of it. And because of that ostensibly value neutral approach, that algorithm has focused on division and anger and outrage. And it feels to me that if we were able to change the algorithm, if we were to decide as a society that we had an emphasis on things that were scientifically valid or language that was positive as opposed to angry and negative, again, it doesn't have to be censorship in the sense of we have human beings say, this is blocked, this is not blocked. At the highest level, this is really the action of the algorithm billions of times a day, deciding to favor outrage as opposed to information.
1: So Chris, let me just say, um, you know, I was there when the commercial internet was invented, more or less, almost exactly, was invented uh, the day that I was confirmed as the FCC chair and uh, right before Thanksgiving in November of 1993. And when I say it was commercially invented, then that's when the first browser, the one that Andreessen invented that was optimized for creating websites was released. And the certain protocols that make the Internet work were given away for free. And and almost immediately, the commercial Internet took off. And we at the FCC had to make um, major... uh, critical and very clear decisions about whether or not to promote it or whether to basically have it have the internet be owned and constrained and edited by the telephone companies. So we decided to let it take off and we decided that on a global level. Now from that very moment everyone knew that there were two main streams of content that that were rapidly driving adoption among many demographic segments. One was pornography, and one was violent content. This has never been a secret. This has never been a secret. And there isn't anyone to measure the number of bits in those two buckets, but it's never been a secret. What is different now about then are these algorithms that you just talked about, where based on all accounts, uh, Facebook, in particular, has perfected the mathematics of mm, promoting, placing, and positioning um, uh, violent language and violent uh, uh, video so as to attract attention. Let's not speak about pornography. That's a whole other topic. You'll have to get somebody else uh, you know, to talk about it. Facebook, in perfecting that, if that's true, and that's there are many, many accounts of it. uh, If that's true, then they either do or don't carry a very heavy responsibility just as human beings, not as regulated businesses, right, as a regulated business, but as human beings. They carry a responsibility that I think is akin to the responsibility of a gun manufacturer or the responsibility of a company that makes uh, OxyContin, which is, if if you can do it, should you do it? If you can make these guns, should you pack the magazine with so much uh, uh, in the way of firepower that you can kill dozens and dozens and dozens from a rooftop in Las Vegas, or should you limit uh, uh, the use of that weapon in some way. If you can do it, should you do it? And so what Dorsey has said is this, well, I could let Trump say all these things to everybody, but I'm gonna confine it. And what Facebook has said is we're not gonna confine it. And Richard, isn't it that simple? It is to me. Uh,
2: And um, it's, at the end of the day, you know, uh, algorithms are useful, but there's no substitute for human intelligence and for personal responsibility for how you conduct yourself. And uh, Dorsey shows up
1: very well right at the moment on, on those dimensions, in my view. And more than that, because all these CEOs in tech are really rising to the occasion of speaking about uh, this tragedy of, of George Floyd's death and the tragedy of all of the confrontations in the streets all over america because they're rising to that occasion i think they have to uh, also rise to the, the support of jack dorsey and twitter
0: i do think that in general there is a sense of solidarity at least from what i can tell there is a sense that while this is not necessarily a fight that they welcome they would have preferred to keep their heads down This is a fight where clearly they need to stand on his side. And it is funny with Facebook. The puzzling thing to me is that Facebook is so phenomenally profitable, incredibly insanely profitable, that if any company could sacrifice some short-term financial gains by retuning its algorithms, by not maximizing the thing that drives revenues, but rather maximizing Uh, meaningful engagement that would lead to a more sustainable business that would lead to a better society that it feels like Facebook should do that and has the opportunity to do that. And yet has chosen not to.
1: So the, uh, the hymn goes once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. And it is a brave man, chooses right, card, stands aside. Right. This is a great hymn. There's one thing wrong with it. It isn't once to every man and nation. The moment to decide comes again and again and again. And each time it calls for an act of moral courage. I think Dorsey, uh, uh, he didn't look for this moment. Uh, And the people that are peaceably assembling across the country, they didn't didn't take advantage of the moment. They didn't look for the moment, but they are impelled to to stand somewhere with a sign or in solidarity. Now Again, I have nothing but uh, a loathing and contempt for those that take advantage of the situation to loot and ravage. But the point that I'm making is the moment to decide comes again and again and again. And that's the one thing that does give me some uh, uh, optimism. It, it, racism wasn't defeated in the uh, civil rights movement of the 1960s, that's a tragedy. But, 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 to, but to seize the moment, to battle against it again and again and again, that's our fate, that's our lot, we have to embrace it.
0: Richard. Any historical perspectives on this? I feel like it's difficult to find a better place to end than here, so I want you to put a button on things for us.
2: Well I just think that uh, what Reed said was was very well said and um, I, I really don't think I have anything to add Chris I, there's there's not a word that he just said with which I have any disagreement whatever.
0: Well, Reed, thank you so much for coming on. Richard. thank you so much for arranging this. On behalf of the great Richard Tedlow and Reed
1: Hunt, this is Chris Yeh, and thank you for listening.